0: Just a little love note to all of our loyal Free Cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to
1: the show. This is an ad-free podcast, and we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just... Give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews, and without the stuff
0: that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at Patreon.com forward slash Free Cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five, and it turns out we're gonna start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free
1: cookie supporters. We're gonna make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content like... I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content,
0: you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budick. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and often delicious takeaways. And today, End today. <laughs> Kate needs to get her shit together. Uh, we are super excited because the Inky Phoenix, my book club, we have our monthly pick
1: author here today, Be Schwab, Victoria Schwab, the author of The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Are you going to tell the people? Are you going to tell the people what The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue? Well, yes. for, for those of our listeners who are not also... Inky Phoenix, Inky Phoeni, 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 because Inky Phoenicians, Phoenicians, um, like, like our, like V.E. Schwab will say, cause she lives in Edinburgh. She calls them Ed- Edinburghers and burgers. <gasps> I know. What? If you're from Nom-nom. Edinburgh, you're
0: a, you're a burger. You're and a burger. And if you're from Glasgow, you're a, oh,
1: what was it? Wegan, Gl- Glaswegian or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. Anyway,
0: we, 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 d- we digress. digress. Okay, diverge, digress. So <laughs> I just wanted to read this to y'all because so her most recent novel, which is like Killing the Charts, is called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. It's a truly beautiful piece of work. And when I first saw I, saw, I saw the cover, it's black and gold and it has this gorgeous font and constellation on it. It's very like sucks you in aesthetically. But then when I read the description, I was like, oh my God, when is this book going to come out? And emailed the publisher immediately, and I was like, "Give me your book." Um, Anyway, so I'm going to get back to reading the description. Voice, listen to this, you guys. Okay, a life no one will remember, a story you will never forget. I'm going to drop the corniness. Okay,
1: France, 1714. No, no, no. Do 1980s movie preview voice.
0: (laughs) A life no one will remember, a story. You will never forget. But
1: I'm sorry to interrupt again, but we did just watch the preview for Waterworld for some reason. We watched it a couple nights. Oh, we watched it because for some reason it's in the it's top. It's trending. It's in the top 20 iTunes movies. And so we watched the preview and that was the voice, you know, like, In a land on the water far, far away,
0: Kevin Costner poorly acted. <laughs> Okay, Sorry, sorry, V. Sorry, Victoria. We're back. Okay, so <clears throat> back to the description of Addie LaRue. France, 1714. In a moment of desperation, a young woman makes a Faustian bargain to live forever and is cursed to be forgotten by everyone she meets. I mean, already, right? Yikes. Okay. Thus begins the extraordinary life of Addie LaRue and a dazzling adventure that will play out across centuries and continents, across history and art, as a young woman learns how far she will go to leave her mark on the world. But it's not But everything changes when, when, after nearly 300 years, Addie stumbles across a young man in a hidden bookstore and he remembers her name. Ah! I mean, talk about a freaking hook.
1: Come into a theater near you.
0: But seriously, so I mean, I was just like jumping out of my pants excited.
1: Mm. Panties or pants?
0: My pants. Just your pants. My okay. panties stayed on. It wasn't like that <laughs>
1: level of excitement.
0: Um, and <laughs> and so this is why I read the book, absolutely loved it, picked it for the big club, and so excited yeah. to have Victoria to come on and talk with
1: us. Well, so in this conversation, which you will hear and you will hear for yourself, but but Victoria talks about how she... L- lives in Edinburgh and one of the reasons she was drawn to it is cuz it feels like this historically haunted place. And that because of other series that she's written like one that was set in New Orleans, another place that is known to be haunted. So, it, it, while she was talking about this idea of a place being haunted, I was wondering how in, from in your opinion, Catherine, cuz it was kind of like a chicken the egg, chicken in the egg happening in my head, which is that do we think New Orleans feels haunted because people who live there and move there keep the belief in it being haunted alive? And the same with Edinburgh because of Scottish history and so so much that is intertwined with Scotland. And, and maybe it's just Outlander that I've watched, right? Where there's <laughs> the stones and the fairy circles and the history of kelpies, like the the wood fairies. How much is is Edinburgh actually? more haunted than other cities or people drawn to edinburgh because they want to keep the energy of haunting alive
0: and so they bring the
1: belief to the city
0: of course and i mean that kind of begs the question if you look at something like american gods by neil gaiman the only way that gods stay alive is when they're worshipped so you need believers to exist I guess that's the chicken and the egg idea. That's what I'm right. saying.
1: Like so so is Edinburgh more haunted than other cities, well, or does it draw people who are going to keep the memory of the haunting alive? I think both but two schools of thought.
0: And I think Victoria brought up a really interesting point where she mentioned, you know, Edinburgh's on a ley line. And ley lines, which is only something that I recently learned about, and I am not going to describe it to you,
1: listeners. Well, no, I need you because I don't know well, exactly I, what I'm a ley going line to butcher is. it because
0: I am definitely. It, ley lines, from what I have been told, and we did very, very little, is uh, this like construct of energetic um, lines that connect cities of importance and landmarks, and that certain cities and landmarks lie on this like grid that connects everything in some energetic Oh, we way.
1: briefly learned about this like three or four months ago. Yeah. We talked so, about, there
0: was another book that anyway, I'm going to yeah. bore you with all this information. No, but I, but I actually, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, you know, New Orleans and I was talking with a, a friend of mine who is a shaman and he does ayahuasca ceremonies and he will regularly, you know, I've talked to him about my interest in paganism and my interest in magic and, and spirituality and, I, back in the day, was like, should I go to New Orleans to learn? And he's like, mm, hard no, when I asked him that. And he's like, I will never go do a ceremony in New Orleans because it's spellbound. To which, of course, I was like, what, what, what do you mean it's spellbound? And I still don't really understand what he means, but there is something, and I and I believe in the energetic imprint of locations and whether it has anything to do with ley lines or just how much blood was spilled in certain areas or like the historical energetic imprint of what happens in a place throughout the centuries um, or just like a place like New Orleans, like you had so many different cultures merge there and very different strong religious and spiritual beliefs merge there. And I do feel like when you have that much darkness and spiritualism combined in one location, like what I'm sure happened to a certain extent in Edinburgh throughout the years as well, that it does almost like dig this hole into the world
1: that like connects us to another plane. Um, yeah, Well, because I, you know that since we've been together, I, I feel that I've been more open-minded absolutely, about the idea of hauntings and, any and, and things that are tied to that, the, sp- the spirituality that could be tied to energy and reincarnation, and and you, I mean you know this, I do. so I can I can be skeptical in moments and cynical, and you don't think it's it it is necessarily reflective of an entire ideology that I that I believe. Yeah. But but so so my I, I I say that as a preface to, I still have questions about whether in the moments in my life when I've been to places and I feel like I'm caught in like an energetic tornado mm-hmm. of the moment, right? And and the one that stands out to me probably the most is when I went to Nuremberg and I went to the the marching grounds of the Nazi party, this famous kind of open stadium in Nuremberg. And I felt it was nighttime and like the sun had just gone down and I felt very clearly the energetic imprint of Mm -hmm. that place. Like it was just when you use, when someone uses a term like echoes, like that's what it felt like. But there's also the cynical part of me that wonders how much I brought to that moment and how much I willed the feeling into existence. Because if I had, you know, if I'd been passing through Nuremberg and I hadn't cared about world war II or Holocaust or the Nazi history, and I, I, How much did I meet the energy more than halfway? Sure. That's a really
0: interesting question. But I also think that... Without an answer, really. It's a question without an answer. It is a question without an answer, but with lots of theories. Um, I I do think that there is this projection of where you should feel hauntings. You know, there's this projection of like, if you're in New Orleans and you're walking around in St. Louis Cemetery number one, you should be able to touch the wall of a tombstone and and if you're connected like feel the vibrations or if you're in Marie Laveau's shop, you should be able to feel some kind of connection. And I've never felt um hauntings or energy in obvious places. Hmm. I've
1: I've felt I it. would suggest Nuremberg's a pretty obvious place.
0: True, but it, it's it's not like you were touching a certain statue or well, I don't know, I wasn't I with went you. to the center of the marching grounds and looked around. <laughs> Well, okay, you do you. But I'm just saying that whenever I felt something like, you know, it's like walking around on a random street in London where something overcomes me and I can't explain it, but Mm -hmm. it's just a feeling that I've never had before. Or I spent the night in this reconstructed house that I found out had burnt down in Detroit one night and I couldn't sleep and I felt like I had a pressure on my chest for like an hour during the night. And there's just certain areas where it just, you feel it. And- and I think every human is very different and wired differently to pick up on these sensitivities. And I mean, ultimately not picking up on them probably is probably a more luxurious way of living than picking up on them. But, um, I don't know. And, and I, I have, I've never been in a situation where like my drawers have flown open and forks start flying
1: through the air or something like that. You know, no, like you're better than that. Come on. obvious. obvious you're better than that. Haunting. But, uh, and I, and this, this ties to Victoria because I do have the sense that there's a level of human experience that if you're in a place like Edinburgh and you're open to the idea and you're a, you believe whether it's a belief or whether it's just reality that Edinburgh is haunted that it leads to like a level of empathy and compassion and insight into the world that I think is a layer deeper and remembering and not, you're not the first of your kind yeah and and so there's a there's a deep part of me that like, when I think of my, the, the experiences that I can name where I do feel like I've tapped into this idea of an energetic imprint that like, I, I like suck them dry of inspiration because I think they get you somewhere different than you can get if you're just writing about the world that we can see and hear and feel. And so it's not like a cynicism where I don't want them to exist. It's like a, it's like a hopeful optimism that this idea of being connected to this this force field that I do believe exists, I want more of it than less of it. So are we going to move to New Orleans or are we going to move to Edinburgh?
0: I would rather move to Edinburgh. Okay. Let's do that then. Done. So, Victoria, we're coming for you! But for now, we're just going to talk to you on the phone. Let's do it. Victoria Schwab, also known as the... Swab is the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 20 books including the acclaimed Shades of Magic series, The Villain series, The Monsters of Verity duology, and guess what? The one that we're here to talk about today, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Her work has received critical acclaim, has been featured in the New York Times, Entertainment Weekly, The Washington Post, and more, been translated into more than a dozen languages, and been optioned for television and film. When she's not haunting Paris streets or trudging up English hillsides, she lives in Edinburgh. Scotland, and is usually tucked in the corner of a coffee shop dreaming up monsters. Victoria, so you are coming to us from France, um, mm-hmm. and uh, Scotland is your normal home, but you are American. Am I correct in saying yes, that? Yes,
2: I'm, I'm, I'm a half Z, so I'm half <laughs> American, half English. I live in yeah. Scotland, and I'm in
0: France. Okay so Kate and I are actually both pretty obsessed with Scotland and embarrassingly so we are big fans of Outlander. <laughs> of course. <I'm laughs> also, there is nothing
2: embarrassing about being okay, a fan. Okay thank of- you. But Team I'm Outlander. Another- Scotland
0: that I moved there. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, tell us about what is it like living in Scotland? Do you ever want to come back to America? We were just discussing off-air, you know, how good chicken eggs are when they come right out of your backyard. Like there's no going back to pale yolk in America, right?
2: (laughs) No, no. I will say I I I picked Edinburgh because I had I had traveled there and I had visited there, and then my career got to a point where I was spending so much time on the road that I began to wonder like for me, vacation meant coming home. So where did mm-hmm. I want to call home when I wasn't traveling? And Edinburgh had always been really special to me. And um, my family is English and Scottish. Uh, my grandmother' side is Scottish. And so I just um, I just wanted a, a, ha- a heart-happy place. Like in mm-hmm. French, it would be a coup de coeur, like a cut of the heart. But in Scotland, I, I just felt like every time I got off the train in Scotland... All of the silts in me just settled to the bottom.
1: I like that description. Now, um, I've I've been to Edinburgh a couple times and I'm always blown away by, I feel like it's the most underrated city in the world, especially in terms of like its beauty and the way the castle. It's
2: pretty magical. At
1: night feels like it's floating. What have you discovered living there? I mean, I know you're not there right now, but what have you discovered living there, uh, the facets of Edinburgh life that you can't quite grasp if you're just parachuting in for like a week at a time?
2: I mean, it's deeply haunted, which is something that I love about it, because the mm. Scots, and I think a lot of the English as well, but especially the Scots, like are quite nonplussed by ghosts. <laughs> so it's not that you don't believe in ghosts. It's simply that they're not really phased by them. So I think, I think one of the things that's most surprising about Edinburgh is how haunted it is. And just like really not passively haunted. Like it's in everything. Like you will, even if you don't believe in ghosts and you come to a place like Edinburgh, you will start to feel almost kind of the fog of the supernatural set in all mm. around. you. But on top of that, everyone is just so deeply kind Like the Scots are such lovely people, and Edinburghers, especially, are just really lovely and really sweet.
1: Edinburghers? That's so cute. That's adorable.
2: It's Glaswegians and Edinburghers, and so it's the Ouija's and the burgers.
1: Um, I'm picturing Ronald McDonald and the (laughs) hamburger, unfortunately. It's
2: just like, you know. Much like France in a lot of ways, like you would never enter a cafe or a shop without greeting the proprietor. Like there's just a sense of warmth. Like you feel like you're in a small town no matter which neighborhood you're in. And I live in a really kind of small borough by the seaside in Edinburgh, because mm. Edinburgh is is a volcano, really. And so a lot of the city is set up on the volcanic rim. But if you go straight down the the road two miles, you're at the sea. And so my neighborhood is actually on the seaside. And it's just like, you know, everybody, you, you know, the shop owners, you have like kind of the best of both worlds of this incredible, magnificent thousands year old city and the intimacy of a small town. And, and how do...
1: How do you think living in Edinburgh, how, or if at all, has it influenced your writing?
2: Well, I think it's less that it's influenced me in a direction I wasn't already going Mm -hmm. and more that it just feeds a direction I already go in, which is to say like, I, I just think it feeds whatever that creative part of me is that longs for the world to be stranger than it is that longs (laughs) for magic and the liminal spaces. And I mean, Edinburgh lays, sits on ley lines. So it has energy. It has, uh, historicity. It has a lot of pagan culture and I'm a pagan. And so getting to celebrate Beltane and like fire festivals mm. and hot menets, like it's wonderful. And, and it just feels like it, it plays the same music that plays inside me.
0: That, do you ever write in New Orleans when you're in America?
2: Yeah. Well, I, I have a book coming out in March that's set in New Orleans and getting to do research there. Yes. I would oh, definitely play <laughs> very different songs, but they, they, those, they exist in the same, in the same style.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. We live in Charleston, South Carolina. So we're a sister city, you know, Savannah and New Orleans. And it's that yeah. I completely agree with that historical imprint both. Um, but it, but it's the darkness and the beauty of these cities that truly makes it magical. New
2: Orleans definitely echoes. And I love Charleston as well, but New Orleans specifically. So I wrote a ghost series for for younger readers called City of Ghosts. And each book was set in a city that had a history of hauntings. And, and kind of looking, at, and all of the ghost stories that are told in the books are real, like real recorded legends. And so, the first book, City of Ghosts, is set in Edinburgh. The second book, Tunnel of Bones, is set in Paris, and the third book, Bridge of Souls, is set in New Orleans.
0: Oh my goodness! And the first, the first one is coming out in. So no, this is this a, out. the first yeah. one's the said, okay. one.
2: Okay. And the third one comes out in March, and so Got I've. It. I will say that. New Orleans is the closest I've ever come in the United States to feeling that same kind of absolute permeation of the supernatural inside the mundane that happens. I just think Edinburgh is just the much older version. Yeah, absolutely. Well,
1: so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume Tunnel of Bones set in Paris has something to do with the catacombs. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and um, we we went to the catacombs at this point, like. It oh, seems like it wasn't that long ago, but ago, then 2020 maybe. just disappeared. So whenever it was, and I didn't think that I would be bothered by it. She, Kate did oh, not man. handle it. I well. just, I, 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 <laughs> I didn't mean, handle it well. I felt claustrophobic and some of it.
2: I was going to say, it's the being six stories, five stories underground doesn't help.
1: Yeah. And, no. and there were little bits about this. Con- I mean, I'm sure, you know, cause you wrote a whole book kind of on it, but like that, the miasma. Oh yeah. Of, which is like the, I mean, for for our listeners, right? The kind of uh, the way I pictured it and the way I interpreted was like kind of the liquefied remains of the Mm -hmm. dead, kind of like, (laughs) yeah, yeah,
2: that that. Did you hear when you were on? Did you do one of the tours? Like, yes, we had the little headset where you could go around and trigger it. Yeah, did you hear by the end that they used to sneak down there and hold orchestral (laughs) concerts? Oh my god! Why were we not alive for that? That would have been amazing. I would have not gone. For those (laughs) who don't know, I mean, and also people did it. It's now cordoned off so that you can only walk a specific route. Mm-hmm. And so it can be really easy to think of it as a road with a beginning and an end. But the catacombs stretch under most of Paris and contain six million bodies. Oh. Which is, I mean, it's an incredible thing to even contemplate. Only the first row of them are ordered and organized into the patterns. The rest of the bodies just are kind of, the rest of the bones that make up the bodies, aside from the femurs and the skulls, are just kind of piled behind and are are just, you know, slowly collapsing.
1: Yeah, I, I whenever we're in cities that are old, and, and this includes even New York City, I can't help but, like, transport myself to, like, the... 1800s when there's like not really sewers and the streets are sort of just like swimming with feces Mm -hmm. and bodily fluids. And I assume some form of miasma because of of the time period and the different lack of cleanliness standards. I
2: mean, the whole reason they made the catacombs was because the graveyards were collapsing in upon themselves and overflowing. And like the bodies were, you know, sliding around and 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 the catacombs provided a much more hygienic repository Mm -hmm. in that way but when you think about what it took to get to that point it's not a it's not a good idea and you see i think the historicity that gets left out so often in entertainment is the idea that like these places did not smell good (laughs) oh my gosh i know i always think that
1: like when we're watching outlander i'm like okay none of these people have showered ever in their life and they're walking (laughs) down a street with shit flowing wash basins,
2: wash basins <laughs> full of shit just being tossed out windows like
1: oh and there's a the, the little tidbit that we learned I learned anyway recently in Charleston because I've only lived here three years is like if you go down to like the battery part out front of certain very old houses there's like this little um ramp and it was for like sliding the shit off of the bottom of your yep. shoes and yeah. I can't help, but just be like, okay, the fact that that had to exist, what does that mean for uh, the surrounding area? I just yep, really no. love where this conversation has gone. <laughs> this is <it's laughs> not exactly what I was This is, I love it. This is <laughs> what historical I anticipated accuracy. talking to you about. Yeah.
2: <laughs> historical accuracy. Uh, but yes, it's all to say that Edinburgh is quite a magical yeah. place. <laughs> way to bring it back, way to bring it back,
0: nice. Yeah. Well, okay, so aside from all the stink of years past, um, obviously, you know, your attraction to the magical and the darkness, and I I love that you're a pagan, uh, it all adds up to this beautiful accumulation of what Addie LaRue is, in my opinion. And I, I can't, I think the first time that I read the description of your book before it came out, I was sitting with Kate and I just made her read it right away because I've never read such a concise description about a book that made me so wanting to like put on tap shoes and and read a book it's such a fascinating concept and um, and then I went on to Instagram and I found you and there was this post that you put up and it was a photo of your tattoos the the magpie and the crow And that post was just so... I mean, it goes without saying that obviously you were very good with your words, but (laughs) you you talked about the concept of manifesting success kind of versus accepting, you know, the way the dice will roll. And which makes me think of the whole concept of surrender for Addie Mm -hmm. and how throughout the years, you know, surrender, surrender, the darkness is trying to make her surrender and she resists. And I was just curious if your experience with writing and what you expect, what you hope for it? Like, did that influence your concept of surrender within Addie LaRue or were those separate things?
2: Less about writing, probably but more about publishing, Mm -hmm. which is like a really important distinction. I feel like we don't often make, which is like the act of writing, which is its own creative process and the act of being an author and being, you know, someone whose occupation is writing. And the fact is like, Our industry has a very high mortality rate, right? Like people do not survive. Mm -hmm. Maybe they survive in the literal sense, but like there is a reason like just in YA and middle grade alone, like 200 novels come out traditionally published every year. You know, and if you, and so I came out as a YA author to begin with, and I was in a debut class, I think 195 of us, and that was 10 years ago. And if you now look at the number of those who are still published, there's like five of us, right? And so like, and that's because things are continually new and they're continually being changed over and the publishing industry is continually looking for the quote, next big thing, right? And you can't survive really as a mid list these days, like, because- you won't financially be compensated for it. (laughs) So it's like an increasingly difficult industry to survive in, especially one that fetishizes debut authors. And really like this concept of who might be the next big thing, not understanding that for the vast majority of us, our careers will be made by a body of work, not by a single text. And so, yeah, this is an industry which I am very grateful to be in and have done very well in, in the long con of it, like it's very easy to look back at the last 10 years in which I've been in the industry and be like, oh, wow, she's doing awesome. But that's only if you take a macroscopic view, because like if you actually look at it on the year by year, the first five, six years were that they were they were Luke, right? They were trying to beat me into surrendering mm-hmm. and I think that my stubbornness and I will say resilience like it is why I'm still here because, you know, I, 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 got a very small, I was very fortunate to get an agent. My first book did not sell my second book sold under really weird circumstances and not in a great way by my fourth book or by my third book, my series was canceled, mm-hmm. um, through no fault of my own and after making royalties. So I like earned yeah. out my advice and the publisher still decided I wasn't doing quote well enough. Mm, they canceled a series at the midpoint. I, was 25. I was already completely burned out. I had fallen out of love with writing and basically had been told by the publisher, it's not our fault. You're not doing good enough. What? Like it must be you, you know? And so like, I was feeling and you're making incre- royalties. Yeah. But I was feeling incredibly beaten down. And then I, I basically refused to quit. And so I started writing a book just for myself. And at the same time that that sold, and again, for, for not a living wage for like a, a, a a chance in hell, you know, (laughs) um, like that sold and that was not enough to keep me above water. But at the same time I took a work for hire project for Scholastic where they provide you with a, a prompt essentially and say, we have a need in our school clubs and fairs market for this kind of book will pay you almost nothing but if it does all right in the book clubs and fairs market you can make make royalties and so it was like an ego hit of course like I'm coming out of having written my own stories into deciding that I'm willing to basically take a day job in writing so that I can stay in the industry nothing is coming up my name right nothing is coming up well and then what happened was Tor my adult publisher took this chance on this book that they said everyone said no one would buy because it was a book about supervillains called vicious, but they were willing to take a chance on it in case what I wrote next was good. (laughs) And, and I mean, they did not put it that way, but like it was a flyer. Like everyone in the industry was saying, unless you're writing underneath an existing comics brand, nobody's going to buy a novel. No one's Mm going to read a novel about supervillains. And at the same time, Scholastic gave me these trilogy of books to write that I could make my own about essentially a guardian angel helping preteen girls with problems. So out of my brand, but I found a way to make it mine. And then what happened was Vicious came out. People started really liking it. And at the same time, my, my Guardian Angel series, Everyday Angel came out, never into bookstores, only into book clubs and fairs, mm. where it sold almost a million copies. Wow. And so, on like a very small royalty scale, but that is what allowed me to move to Edinburgh and go to graduate school. And, and so like that kept me in the room of publishing long enough to do new things and try again with, with shades of magic and a darker shade of magic, a book again, paid almost nothing for did not hit a bestseller list, but by the time it came out in paperback that that book had a following. And so I finally got that traction about seven years into my career, but this is all to say like, I try, I had to be an embodiment of stubborn hope for for years
0: so that embodiment of stubborn hope I'm always so intrigued by what keeps someone pursuing their passion or success or however you want to look at it um because
2: also spite we should probably (laughs) say spite when my (laughs) my first publisher told me that it was my fault I I, like there was a lot of spite there yeah
1: do you (laughs) screenshot your shit back to them now (laughs)
2: Um, well, I definitely like, had a week editor. six bitch hey, on the list. Addie <laughs> LaRue, <fuck laughs> <I> definitely y'all. <laughs> definitely had an editor when my first book hit the New York Times was An editor from that publisher kind of messaged me under the table with a like, "Good job."
0: a yeah. oh, nice. little tail in between the legs. Well, yeah. so another concept from Addie that I love so much is you know the Do you think a life has any value if it doesn't leave some mark upon the world? Do you Do you think that was like a driving force? For you to, I mean, but once I probably, we get beyond the spite part, yeah. <laughs> you know,
2: I mean, yeah, I think like this is a weird thing. Being an author requires both a generous helping of self-doubt and a generous helping of narcissism because you have to believe that you have a story worth telling. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of caught between these forces all the time and you can be a writer all your life and be very valid as a writer and never let anyone else see that work. That doesn't mean you're not a writer. But to be an author, there is a a quantifiable consumption element to it, right? You're not saying, I just want to write stories. You're also saying, I want those stories to be read. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think being an author requires a helping of the desire to leave a mark and be influential. And I think something I've always feared in my life is irrelevance. Mm -hmm. You know, I fear erasure. I fear being erased from the narrative in that way. And so I think that a lot of my... Propulsion to create, in addition to making worlds that other people get to enjoy, is the desire to leave a mark. Absolutely.
1: Do you have any concept of where that desire comes from? Because Catherine and I talk about this a lot. We we both kind of have that same compulsion where we we when we look at the world, like we want to make a mark on it, whatever that looks like. And then I look at you know other friends or family members who are amazing, and it's I don't think of it as a failure, but like they're perfectly content in a life that is their small circle and they don't need this kind of more grand, um, achievements to satisfy them. And I don't
2: don't understand understand them by the way. I think contentment scares me because it feels too close to, um, not apathy, but like it feels right aligned with ambivalence. Mm -hmm. And I think those things scare me. And I don't know, look, I don't know if it's because I'm an only child. I think a lot of it (laughs) probably because I did not set out to be a writer. Like, and my, so my father is a software engineer, like very math and science brain. And I was very math and science brain. Like I originally went to school for astrophysics and the not like the writing and creative industry is a really subjective, impossible to quantify industry. And so Mm -hmm. I think like there's a part of me that is continually desiring quantifiable metrics of success. And I, so I think part of it's leaving a mark. Part of it sure is like not fame, but glory, right? The same things that the devil talks about in Addie LaRue, but part (laughs) of it is just like a constant desire for the quantifiable metrics of success because this is an industry that deprives you of it. Like there are so few metrics.
0: And I think the thing that's so interesting too, being an author is it's such a you know, solitary endeavor. You spend yeah. often years just in your own world. Maybe you're lucky enough to have, a you know, a, a partner or a close friend reading over your shoulder and being a cheerleader while you're doing it. But, you know, finding that fuel... <laughs> in between the publication and, and, and then it's not even like publication is going to guarantee you a win. Then you have to go into the stress mode of like, I'm shedding my skin and offering my beating heart on a platter to the world. Are they going to eat it? Do I want them to eat it?
2: Maybe I want it back. I do think, and just sorry not to interrupt. I just also want to say like, I do think this is one of the reasons a lot of authors don't make it and it's not to do anything with the quality of their work, but it has to do with the, the, you know, the timbre of their heart, if you will, like it has to do with their ability to live in that space of uncertainty in terms of the uncertainty of reception and feel internally motivated. Because I do think that's the one thing I had is like, I grew up very internally motivated. Like I want to, I'm never competing against anyone else. I'm only ever competing against myself. I want personal record every single time. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not about anyone else's record. And so I think that some of it that, that I see so many of my author friends struggle with, especially the ones earlier on in their career and the reason I worry about their longevity is because at the end of the day, it's going to be you versus you. Yeah. Do you... um. Have you read the Midnight Library yet, Matt Higgs? No, it's being delivered to me next week. I put in a giant order with my local bookstore in Edinburgh <laughs> to support them for the holidays. And so I bought like 10 books to be delivered. And uh, that's one of them. So I haven't read it yet. I would it would be so fascinated to hear what you have to say about that. I, I think he, it,
0: it's fantastic. I just read it. And I don't know if you follow his his Twitter or his Instagram, but he's so um, beautifully transparent about uh, his struggles with depression and anxiety and um, and it it made me think of Henry, and yeah. Addie Larue, and and then you also recently shared, you know, the dark periods that you've endured, but that ultimately at the end of the day, you know, you start to see blue after the yeah. storm, and. I'm always curious with authors, like how much of themselves are put
2: in, <laughs> into characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Normally not very much, uh, with Henry being the exception. So the the novel obviously has three main characters, Addie, the devil and Henry. And I'm calling him the devil. We understand he's not the devil. He's a precursor to the devil. He's a pagan god. But, but Henry was the character I was most terrified of writing. Because for a very long time, I mean, this book was in the works in my head for like 10 years, nine years, um, rounding up that last year. Mm -hmm. And I I had a really clean idea for Addie and for Luke. And Henry was a placeholder. Mm -hmm. I knew what he functioned as conflict and plot, but I didn't know him as a human. Mm -hmm. And as I started to write him, I realized I needed a way to crack him open a little bit to get inside and he is just like I was terrified of who he could be which is essentially like the great male millennial problem. <laughs> He's like a like privileged cisgender white yeah. young man um in New York City who is having an existential crisis and it's like join the club. Um and so I realized I started I basically made him me. I decided to make Henry Strauss, who I would have been if I hadn't found writing, and so I gave him all of my mental health quandaries. In fact, he discusses mental health as a storm, and I gave him that from that's my own lexicon. That's like how I learned to to think of a uh, panic attacks and depressive episodes because the 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 brain the the lie that your brain tells your body in the moment is that it's permanent and mm-hmm. that it's degenerative, right? The lie that your brain tells your body in a depressive episode in a panic attack is that as terrible as you're feeling right now, it will never get better. It will only get worse. And so the way that I learned to get through those episodes was the reminder that like storms can be terrible. They can be just awful destructive forces that, but if you can batten down those hatches and if you can focus on surviving them, the thing about a storm is that it always ends. It always passes. No storm is, is perpetual. And so I gave him those pieces of myself. I gave him all of it. And I'm, that's something I've never done before with a character. And it's something I hope to never do again, just because <laughs> it was just ex- way too vulnerable, mm-hmm. like to not even be able to click. Like I did a coming out essay on Oprah magazine a couple months ago. And even that I wrote in second person. So I had a tiny bit of psychic distance. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was spoken to you instead of to me. Um, writing Henry is the most vulnerable I've ever had to be.
1: How would you say that writing affects your mental health?
2: That's a great question because it's not a negative thing, but I enter into the writing of difficult scenes from a really specific, careful place, which is to say, Addie LaRue is a book written entirely out of order But I wrote it to the emotional beats that I could write the day I was writing. So, for instance, I outline really rigidly so I knew the needs from a plot and from an emotional standpoint of each chapter. And then I would look at where I was that day and say, okay, am I emotionally capable of tackling 1899 today? Am I emotionally (laughs) capable of tackling? Like, some scenes didn't have nearly as much emotional need, but like, The Henry scenes, I had to save that that part four. I had to really wait until I was in a very specific headspace. Um, And I couldn't do it on, like, a random Tuesday. I had to be, like, in the right balance of stable and vulnerable, like, in a place where I had both feet on the ground and could go into that space.
1: Yeah, and and even from a broader perspective, the the way I look at at least my relationship with writing is that writing is – the act of writing is – positive for my mental health and the act of publishing is negative for my (laughs) mental health. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) And I try. Writing is magic and publishing is not.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I, and I feel like that relates to basically any creative endeavor. I feel like you learn pretty quickly that, and I think Emily St. John Mandel said this, like the, when she was on, was like the the only anecdote to publishing is writing. And the only. Yeah. And so it's like every time I like catch myself for like a month, just sort of like refreshing email and like checking things on the internet, I'm like, whoa, I have got to get out of this
2: headspace. Why I always refer to them as two different jobs. Like I just, I, I make a very clean delineation in my head between writing and being an author, which is that like publishing is a business and the commodification of art is such a messy thing and promotion, all of these things, they, they, empty your creative well, they don't fill it. And so finding ways to protect the creative headspace and recenter and realize like, oh, this is what I do. This is why I do it. Because it's really easy to lose that on the publishing side.
1: Yeah. Um, going back to something we were talking about earlier, um, which was when your former publishing house kind of give you the ax to use a very coarse term. (laughs) Um, I've often looked at like my own career path and, you know, if, if younger people are like, well, how did you get to that X place? And Mm -hmm. there's some sort of belief in that question. Like I had like full control over that. And whereas yes. I look at it and I'm like, okay, there was that one moment and I think of it as like a pivot moment where I was, you know, cause I, I was in journalism for a very long time and I was working for a small newspaper and it just felt like I was working like these terrible hours for no pay. And I applied for this, I applied for this job at a local chemical company that like made the, the, the chemical that went in uh, Powerade and Gatorade and vitamin water. Yeah. And I applied for the job there that was like their communications manager. And I wanted, at the time, apparently I wanted this job and I (laughs) didn't get it, but I know if I'd gotten it, I would have taken this job and I would have kind of boxed myself into a a kind of like nine to five corporate career. And Mm -hmm. I'm always just excessively grateful I didn't get that job because like three months later I got this break to cover the 76ers for the Philadelphia Inquirer and like I just then my career kind of went a different direction and in a direction that I wanted it to go so I'm I'm wondering can does anything like that exist for you when you think of your own career in publishing that like obviously a lot of it is merit and grit but is there a part of you that's like man some some of this is just like there's 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 versions of my life in the multiverse where I get boxed into some other career and I'm doing some other thing. And was there any moment where you're like, wow, I could have gone this one direction, but for some reason I went this other direction.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I never thought I was going to do this as a job, right? Like I was going to be an academic. I was going to go down these roads. I truly feel like in the wake of everything falling apart with my first publisher, I had that moment. I was 25. I thought, well, screw this. I'm just going to find back, find my way back to the path. And I decided to do a hail Mary, right. In writing vicious, where I just was like, I'm going to write a book because I clearly can't control the cogs of publishing. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. going to write a book that I want to read. And that way, if I go out, I went out on my own terms instead of sitting there at the computer asking, what do other people want to read? Yeah, And, and even, you know, taking the book deal for vicious, which was for like 10 grand, I think, like, was a risk. And then taking the, the deal for the Everyday Angel books, which again was like 10 grand, was a risk. Like mm-hmm. on paper, it made no sense, but I just had a gut feeling that I could make it mine. Like I was just like, I would rather keep the door open. I can definitely say there's a version of me that didn't do either one of those. There's a version of me that said no to the Scholastic Work for Hire deal. There's a version of me that didn't write or finish Vicious. There's a version of me that went back to graduate school at that point. Like I remember living in Brooklyn and I only use living very loosely, like failing <laughs> to survive in New York um, because I had this erroneous idea in my head that that's what an author should do is like move to New York in his 20s, um, just failing across the board. And I just remember making the decision, like I'm going to do both of these things. I'm going to say yes. And like, it's going to work out. Okay. If I can just survive this period, you know, if I can just get through it. And so I really feel like tour taking Miriam Weinberg, my editor at Tor, persuading the publisher to take a chance on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and being willing to, and I had the immense privilege of, I could move back home, which is exactly what I did. I could take these two risks, but I could not afford to do it and stay in New York city. And so I moved back home. I moved in to my parents' house at like 25 um for the year that it took me to survive between the points and i basically like swallowed my ego i swallowed my sense of like having failed to make it along xyz along the mark, you know the the road that we're told to walk and i moved back home and i finished the work on these two books and and it like really was such a gut check because i had of course this vision i was this prodigy right i had an agent at 19 i was I had my first publishing deal at 21. Like I was going to take the world by storm. And then I didn't. It was like whisper after whisper after whisper. And this was really my last, I felt my last chance, not in the melodramatic sense of like, there won't be more opportunities in the heart sense of like, I could feel myself losing hope. Yeah. Well, taking
0: it back, speaking of heart space, the the coming out essay that you wrote for Oprah, um, yeah. You know, as uh, Kate and I, as a married couple, we we love talking about anything <laughs> queer. Um, yeah. And I, I deeply appreciate how the invisible life of Addie LaRue was casually queer, I think is how I would put it. You know, there <laughs> It was just, you wrote it like, this is just life. This is love. This Mm -hmm. is people. This is relationships. And as a queer woman, I deeply appreciate that you didn't have to, like, get out the marquee lights and be like, it's a gay (laughs) moment, you know? Yes. And I I wonder, because we do have friends that, you know, when we share stuff, like, I I have a manuscript right now. And there's Mm. queer romance. There's heterosexual romance. There's a little bit of everything. And one of our queer girlfriends read it, and she... She's very upset that one character doesn't end up being with the woman. <laughs> and yeah. um, and I was just wondering, as, you know, part of the queer family, like, did you have any friends who were like, why didn't you go even harder with that? You know, like, was there yeah. any moment of you like,
2: oh, I should gay it up even more? <laughs> I don't know why, like, I, I think there are many temptations to gay it up even more. Um, <laughs> and, like, it's hard. Part of that was paying respect to... The fact that I had the idea for this book when I was 22. Mm-hmm. And there was a version of this book I wanted to create, even though 33 year old me was like, um, this is not gay enough. Like this is not <laughs> overly, <laughs> but I think that like, as you said, casual queerness is the exact words that I use for it as well, which is, I think there's an incredible power and importance in showing queer existence mm-hmm. that is not a plot point that is not the only reason for a character's inclusion in a narrative. And so even though the relationships on the page in this book, the primary ones are straight passing, if you will, none of the characters are straight. Yeah. And I think that's important too, because I think there's a different kind of erasure that happens um, when our present seems to take full credit for our past. <laughs> and and I wanted to make sure that like that the queerness was ever present. On the page for all the characters, and that there was that sense of queer community as well, that it's mm-hmm. not tokenizing. It's not like, well, here's your one gay character, and everyone else is like a sea of straight. Because those of us within the queer community know, like, we're communities for a reason. Like, found family is so extraordinarily important. Um, so, yeah, like, I would definitely say, like, 33 year old me writing the script was like writing the script for the film adaptation was like okay but like we know henry could also be a woman right like <laughs> like i was like wait like there's no reason that like this story plays exactly the same way. Like there's just, there's a- I really hope that that Henry's
1: a woman in the movie.
2: (laughs) Like, I think that there's a version of this film wherein we audition both, like that we audition, you know, like men, women and non-binary or trans actors for that part, because I think that it can be interpreted, like it can be played in that way. So, I mean, I just, I will say, yeah, sure. 33 year old me- Post that essay, post a lot of that self-examination was like, did I make it to even ostensibly straight? But at the same time, I think that casual queerness, it it allowed, it's very subversive. It's kind of the same reason that I have V.E. Schwab on my covers instead of Victoria, which is to say like, I kind of like Getting people invested and then forcing them to deal with whatever prejudice they feel, because like we did not go out and like put a marquee on the back cover of this book being like "extra gay kids like <laughs> in here," because I I hate that. Like yeah. I hate when when queerness gets used as as a sales like point, a selling point. Yeah, yeah, and it sucks. I understand why we do it. I know we need to do it, but I'm also like, no, fuck you. <laughs> like mm-hmm. read the book because it's a book. Um, And like uh, because it's not a plot point, I aggressively didn't want to make it a plot point. And because I came out later, I didn't have like a teen coming out experience. And I think coming out novels are so incredibly important. But so are queer existence novels. Like for those of us that figured out as adults and came into ourselves as adults, we really don't need we don't need the teen coming out novels as much as we need to see that we can just like live and have our lives and have them be just as valid and story worthy as as the really dramatic life-changing experience of when you're 15-16.
1: Yeah. you you had mentioned earlier that your competition is your former self or or some version of that. Um, or I, I'm wondering because when I think of even I, I used to play basketball, when I would think of like watching game tape of myself in high school once I was in college, I would cringe mm-hmm. at the things I couldn't do and the ways in which i had evolved when you read like your first novel that got published <laughs> do you writing is different right because there yeah, yeah. it's not the same I, as like growing a skill set on the basketball court where you can clearly see is, but I, I would imagine there's some level of like reading a manuscript that you wrote at this point 10 12 13 years ago how, i guess the, how has your I, writing evolved
2: i was going to say first of all i i like patently do not reread Unless I have to, like I'm working on Threads of Power right now, which is the next arc in the Shades of Magic series. So obviously there I have to go back and look at it. But like I had my debut novel, The Near Witch, come back into print a couple of years ago. You could not pay me. Like I can't <laughs> because here's something and it's not it's not from any sense of like disrespect to the work or any of that. People ask a version of this question where they ask, like, would you go back and change the writing because you're now, you know, a a more mature writer, a stronger writer. And it's like a novel is a static entity and an author is not. And like a novel becomes a time capsule or any piece of writing becomes a time capsule of the person that we were when we were writing it. And like, you know, I look back and like you can look at my first 10 novels in which I was not out of the closet and really had not even figured out the parameters of my closet. And I was still <laughs> acting out those issues, working out a sense of otherness, the sense of loneliness, the sense of not belonging in my community, in my skin, in my world. All of that is still being explored on the page. Um, and so I really, truly believe that novels become time capsules of the authors we were at the time. And I have to let them exist in that way. I can't, I'm not a palimpsest, right? I can't go back over and rewrite that version of myself. It wouldn't be respectful to the 22 year old that wrote that story because that's the story she could and needed to write at the time.
1: But from a very concrete perspective, like what part of fiction was trickiest for you? Like. For, for those for those people like yeah. just starting out on this path and being plot. like, God, character is just
2: so hard no, or plot right. or world building, like plot what? Plot is hard. Plot is difficult. Like plot, but you know what it is, is I'm a perfectionist and I'm sure you know this too about with writing is like you can't write a book right the first time. There's no, there's no way to write a perfect first draft. That's just the act of getting it down on paper is the job of the first draft. And I be, would become so frustrated that like, pre-draft I couldn't figure out all the twists and turns that like I had to go through the execution of it to figure out what was right and what was wrong drives me crazy (laughs) like I want to I feel like 20 books in, I should be able to write it right the first time and instead I'm just like keenly aware of all the ways in which it's failing to be right but I still have to go through that so like I will say this though for for writers who are listening turn your weakness into your strength like put the time and energy into whatever, instead of like seeing your weak point and being like, well, I guess that's my weak point. Like I saw plot as my weak point. And so I put five times as much energy into it. And I said like, okay, we're not going down the road of writing this draft until we know we have enough plot. So mm-hmm. I like build story skeletons to make sure that I have the room to have enough story to be exciting in the plot. Mm, okay.
0: Speaking of plots, I'd want I want to touch upon this before we let you go. Um, your Netflix series, First Kill, yeah. <laughs> that you have coming out. So based on your short story featured in Vampires mm-hmm. Never Get Old, so cheeky, I love it. Um, yeah. And I'm personally that person where, like, there's no such thing as too much vampire story in the world. I oh, will yeah. never, ever grow weary of it's a really vampire kid. content. Especially, like, it. It.
2: It's, it's gay teen girls. Oh, so yes. I feel like, I mean, it's, it's a, so it's, it's the story. Basically, it's Buffy meets Killing Eve, but it's, like, aggressive. <sighs> gay so it's about a teen um a gay teen girl named Juliet happens to be a vampire and she has a crush on a girl at her school named Calliope and she decides that Calliope is going to be her first kill and when they end up together at a school party and Juliet goes to bite Calliope Calliope goes to stake her in the heart and it turns <laughs> out that her teen girl crushes a vampire hunter um and it's just like it's a genre it's serious like it's a drama But it just has all of my favorite things about vampire canon. And it also has the beauty of not having these characters cast to the fringes of the narrative. You know, it's a it's a black vampire hunter family coming to Savannah to figure out why there's a monster influx in Savannah. And it's a white vampire family that are like old money debutante culture in Savannah and it's the daughters of those two families. Oh
0: my goodness. And when is this going to, when is the adaptation hitting Netflix?
2: Um, so we're halfway through the writer's room right now for season one. And the goal is to start production in like March. So hopefully by end of next year. And so are you cast and like all geared and ready cast to go? Is not second. So okay. we do the room first, but like, we've just got our casting director. We're going to, I think, do like a national search for Juliet and Cal to make sure we have like new talent that feels right for them. That's awesome. That's so exciting.
0: It's so exciting. We will definitely be tuning in for that. Um, and also do you, do you have any, like, what's the last book that you read? I know you just ordered a whole bunch and you're waiting for them to get delivered.
2: Okay. Okay. I just read a book called we ride upon sticks. Ah, yes. I have that Um, on my pile. I think Quan Barry, I might be getting that first name. I might be pronouncing that wrong. Delightful, like literally about a girls field hockey team, 1989, like private school who forms an inadvertent coven and accidentally <laughs> kind of signs their name in the book of the devil. I love it. And, and like starts winning. <laughs> and it's delightful, um, really unexpected. I I like, this is going to sound wrong and I don't mean it this way. I enjoyed it so much more than I even thought I would.
0: No, that makes sense. I, I gave that to our younger cousin and she was like, There's too many eighties references. Like this is all going above my head. I'm like, Okay, I'll take it.
2: Yeah. There are definitely a lot of eighties references. So it's like even before my time a little bit, but I still I still just loved I loved it. I loved what the messages, like I loved the camaraderie. I love it felt the voice was just spectacular. And possibly the most important
0: question that you'll get all day long that we always wrap up with, Victoria, what is your favorite cookie?
2: Oh, um, okay. Have you guys ever had a pillow cookie?
1: No. No, tell okay. us.
2: Pillow cookie is basically like a a cookie in which there's like a flattened brownie in the center. What?
1: What? So, so is it like a chocolate chip so cookie like with a flattened choc- brownie in the no, center? No, it's
2: like a sugar cookie or a chocolate chip cookie in in which they've like, you know, created a a patty of brownie pressed inside the heart of the cookie.
1: Whoa. W- is this a Scottish this thing? Is Edinburgh? No, no, no.
2: It's an American thing. It sounds um, American
1: now that you say it. I think
2: it. it's a Southern. It's probably a Southern thing. Hold on. I'm going to look it up for you. Hold on. pillow uh, cookie.
1: We did just learn chocolate. about
0: caramel cake. Speaking of Southern things. Oh. Yeah.
1: That's also very good.
2: We thought... Um, Like bad Charlestonians
0: not knowing that. Oops.
2: (laughs) Okay, so chocolate pillow cookie. Yeah, you guys got to Google it. It's like a brownie stuffed inside a chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) Yes. Please. Okay, I'm looking we'll, at our
0: producer who's this amazing chef and I'm, I'm speaking with my eyes saying, make me pillow cookies.
2: <laughs> I'm going I'm to drop this because this picture is exactly what it's supposed to look like. I'm going to drop it into our Skype. Hold yes, on. please. Yes, please. This is, um,
1: and, this is the best piece of content you've offered. I am
2: <laughs> right. I'm so glad I could help you with this. It just, like, looks like a normal cookie. And then as without, without open, taking us away, there's a brownie inside. Oh no! I, w- I we we oh my we, gosh. See we the want to link. open it,
0: but I'm afraid I'm gonna like knock you off of Skype, and then just like
2: do a little copy link, and then you
0: can check it out after. Amazing pillow cookies! Oh my gosh! All right, well we There's- are gonna go now, obsess about pillow cookies. <laughs> oh, so wow. thank you for that. that. looks So good, and You're Victoria, thank you so much nice. for taking the time to talk with us. And of and someday when you come back to America, we will find you if that ever or happens. When <laughs> we'll come to Edinburgh
1: and will we'll hike Arthur's.
2: Thing together. Well, Arthur's right, seat. Oh, Arthur's are thing. <laughs> yes. Can I just tell you the last thing? The last time I was in Charleston was for um was Y'all the Y'all Fest. Yes, and it was the election, so it was the day after the election. So oh everyone Lord. was just Oof. like devastated. And I walked, I walked like half a mile to the nearest tattoo parlor, and I got the words from Hamilton, "Rise up," in in my handwriting on my writing hand the day of Y'all Fest. As like a reminder of the power of creativity to change worlds, and so like that's the last the last time I was in Charleston. So it was a very very important day. That's powerful. So what you're saying is when
0: you come to hang out with us, we're gonna go get tattoos. Yes, we'll get tattoos. Exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get
1: keep keep rising
0: up. (laughs) Still (laughs) happening. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Your book is beautiful and and. We appreciate the Man, time. screw those first publishers. They yeah. I just yeah, screw them, man. <laughs> Middle fingers <laughs> up. And
2: it fed me. It fed me for a very long time, like better than it cost Yes. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs> be well. Bye.
1: That will do it for today's episode of Free Cookies. It's so
0: spooky.
1: It was the spookiest episode we've had in a while, was it? Was it spooky? No, it totally know. wasn't spooky. I love that we talked about haunting stuff. I mean, stuff. we just it's finished talking about pillow cookies. I mean, that is not the scariest thing anyone's You know, cookies are so spooky. A sugar cookie wrapped around a brownie is not the scariest thing I've ever heard. It is the most delicious thing I've ever heard. Second only to oatmeal raisin cookies made for me by producer Lindsay Collins of FNB Radio. That's right, that's right. Oatmeal raisin cookies that include Golden raisins, because that's where it's at. As we discussed before the taping of this show, golden raisins are often not as dry. They're also more visually pleasing than regular raisins. And I believe that these oatmeal raisin cookies have an element of hazelnut as well to add like an earthiness to the oatmeal raisin. So that's my cookie content that I'm offering. We did just come pillow cookies to oatmeal raisin cookies and a shout out to our producer. Well,
0: fortunately, you had that great cookie content because sadly- this is normally when I would read off the fun names of people who've taken the time to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. And Why don't you make one up? one. Uh